Well, good morning. Sorry, I preemptively came up here. <laughs> My name's Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at Deer Creek Church uh, and also a church planter with hopes of planting a church uh, somewhere in the Denver metro area in the fall of 2021. We also have another church planter on staff. His name is Brett, and you saw him up here a little bit earlier. He's going to be planting a church in uh, the fall of 2019, so this coming fall. Um, I want to share something with you before we get started this morning. Uh, if you're new to Deer Creek or, you know, if, if you've been here for, you know, maybe a a, a short while, and you're, you're wondering, how do I get oriented here at Deer Creek? There's a great class starting next week, next Sunday at this service, the 1045 a.m. service. It's a three-week class called Starting Point, and the name gives it away. It's the starting point of uh, how do you want to grow here at Deer Creek? How do you, if you want to learn about who we are and, and see what your next steps of faith would be, Starting Point is a great place to get uh, plugged in here at Deer Creek, and it's uh, taught by another one of our assistant pastors, uh, Tim Rainquist. So here's what I'm going to do this morning. If you have your Bible with you, flip open to Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to be reading from verses 15 through 20, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, that's okay. It's going to be printed on the screen behind us. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the passage and then we're going to pray that God would teach us this morning by his Holy Spirit. And then uh, we'll continue on. But if you have your Bibles, Colossians chapter one, beginning in verse 15, this is God's word. He, that is Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you. We thank you that we don't have to probe around in the dark to figure out who you are, but you've clearly revealed yourself, that you've clearly revealed yourself in the scriptures and that you speak to us. And we pray that you would speak to us now. God, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit too, to, to teach us, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and that you would guide us this morning. And we pray that you would really personally apply this message, uh, this letter that Paul wrote some time ago, and apply it personally to us and every person in this room. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the 16th and 17th century, there was a, a major controversy, and it was a major controversy around a group of people known as Protestants. And these Protestants were protesting against the Roman Catholic Church of the time. And, and the reason that they were protesting was for a number of reasons, but I wanna bring two to your attention this morning as we get started. The first was they were protesting against the Roman Catholic Church because they were insisting that they could have a Bible that was printed in their own language. Uh, up to that point, the Bible had only been printed in Latin or in its original languages of Greek and Hebrew, and, and nobody spoke those languages. So they were insisting that they would have a Bible that was printed in their own language so they could read it and understand it and hear it taught and understand it in their own language. 
But another thing that they were protesting against was the need and the desire to worship God in their own language as well. They wanted to be able to sing out the name of Jesus. They wanted to be able to pray the name of Jesus in their own language. There's this fascinating story of, of these Dutch Christians, these Dutch followers of Jesus. And because it was illegal to gather and worship in Jesus's name and sing out in the Dutch language, they had to gather early in the morning before the sun would rise and they would gather in somebody's home, oftentimes a basement, and and they would just sing to Jesus and they would hear the Bible taught in their own language. And there's this amazing story of this one group who gathered one early morning before the sun came up. And as they're finishing some of the last lines of this hymn, that they, had, that they had written and they were singing out as they were finishing the very last lines, they heard a knock at the door. They knew who it was. And every single person that was gathered there that day would be arrested, they would be thrown in prison. And in fact, some of them would even be executed for following Jesus and singing out his name. Who is this Jesus? Who, who's this Jesus that people would actually risk their lives just for the chance to sing his name in their own language? And, and what's more remarkable is not that Jesus is just worthy to be worshiped and praised, but how he actually changes individual lives and, and the lives of the most unsuspecting people. I think of a lady named Mary Carr. Mary Carr is a, a professor of literature and an author at Syracuse University. She considered herself a lifelong atheist and an alcoholic, and she said she had an incredibly checkered past. In fact, she talked about her abusive mother a lot in her biography and talked about how she upset her mother so she upset her mother so much one time that her mother actually gathered all of her toys and burned them. And as she was being interviewed about uh, how she had come to know Jesus and follow Jesus, she said these words, she said, if you would have told me that one day I'd wind up whispering my prayers in a confessional and on my knees praying to God, I would have laughed myself silly it would be more likely that I would have become a pole dancer, an international spy, a drug mule, or an assassin. So who is this Jesus? Who's this Jesus that not only is worshiped in the face of death, but also changes the hearts and minds of the most unsuspecting people? Who is this Jesus? And, and that's, that's the question I want you to think about this morning. Who, who do you say Jesus is? Who, who do you think Jesus is? One historian said that Jesus is the most recognized yet the least known figure in history. And many consider him to be just a great teacher, right? A guy who lived 2000 years ago, had great moral teaching that we can maybe live by and we'd gain some good insights from. Uh, some people thought that Jesus was this revolutionary political figure. Some thought he was kind of this enlightened guru, kind of like the Buddha. Uh, you remember in the 90s, there was that shirt too that said, Jesus is my homeboy. Remember that? Some people think that Jesus is their homeboy, apparently. You know, some people, they don't, they don't even think Jesus is a real person, that he ever existed. And by the way, no reputable historian or biblical scholar thinks that that's the case. In fact, we have more evidence for the existence of Jesus than any other ancient historical figure. 
And, and what Paul wants us to see in this passage is, is a big Jesus, right? And he says that knowing this big Jesus is actually the most foundational question that you could ever ask in your life. Knowing who this Jesus is, is the most foundational and essential question to life. Paul actually, when he's writing this letter, is in prison and, and he's just received a report back from a man named Epaphras. Epaphras was another pastor during that time. And uh, Epaphras had brought back a report of what was going on in this Colossian church. And apparently there was a lot of stuff going on. Uh, we're told that there were false teachers, people who were willfully and purposely spreading lies about who Jesus was. We're told that people had superstitious beliefs. People were insisting, hey, you have to have uh, direct visions of Jesus in order to actually have a relationship with him. There was also people that were, you know, bringing about these odd practices, these odd Jewish practices that they were insisting, you cannot be right with God. You cannot be right with Jesus unless you do these spiritual things, these spiritual practices. But notice, Paul doesn't begin there, does he? This is Colossians chapter one. This is, this is where he starts. He doesn't start with all of those issues going on. No, he starts first and foremost with Jesus, who he is, what he's done. As if to say, this is more important. Before I give you any instruction on how to live, before I address any issue you're facing, before I give you advice, before I give you counsel about all of these things that's going on in your midst, before I do any of that, you have to know this. This you must know how big this Jesus really is. And, and the same is true for us today. It, it's December 30th, which means we're gonna wake up two days from now and all of us are gonna have a long list of resolutions, right? Ways that we think we have to do something different or we have to improve or we have to be better at. We all want self-improvement, but, but before you get to that, what Paul is trying to tell us today, as he was trying to tell the Colossians then, is that you actually need to begin here. Before you set out to self-improvement, before you set out on issues in life, you have to know how big Jesus is. You have to know this Jesus. This is foundational, this big Jesus. So who is this Jesus? Who is he? Well, Paul begins by telling us, verse 15, that this Jesus is the ruler of creation. Verse 15, he says that he is, that's Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. Stephen Hawking, who's a brilliant scientist and physicist, uh, most people know uh, who, that, who Stephen Hawking is, he just came out with a book recently called Brief Answers to Big Questions. And the very first question, as you can imagine, that's in that book is, is there a God? And Hawkins had an answer to that. He actually opens up that book by saying this, this world is a scary place. So even people as tough as the Vikings believed in supernatural beings to make sense of natural phenomena like lightning, storms, or eclipses. But nowadays, science provides better and more consistent answers but people will always cling to religion because it gives them comfort. In other words, what, what Hawkins was saying was that despite scientific answers or theories to the universe, answers that provide better explanations, Hawkins says, God will always be around because it provides people comfort. But it's interesting, the, the Bible, scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning to the very end, paints, paints an exact opposite picture of what Hawkins says. In fact, the scriptures say that people are not running toward God for comfort. They're actually running toward idols for comfort. 
The Bible says that humankind makes idols for comfort. They don't cling to God for comfort. And in the Bible, these, these were literal idols. Like they would carve wooden things to make it look like a person or an animal and they would put it in a temple and they would bow down and worship it. And, and we don't do that today, but we still suffer from idolatry. We just do it in a more subtle way. For instance, we say things like this. We say, you know what? I, I can never believe in a God who would punish people. Or we say things like, I believe in a God of love, but, but I don't believe in a God of justice. I don't believe in a God of judgment. But, but don't you see, that's, that's still idolatry. What that is, is that is making God to be who we want him to be. Making God to be like what we want him to be like. Instead of actually hearing from God and allowing him to tell us what he's like. Idolatry, in fact, it, it's the essential human problem. And Paul, when he would write to another church 10 years later, this church in Rome, he, he actually says that explicitly. He says that idolatry is the basic root problem of humanity. He put it like this. He said, for although they, that's us, all of us, every person who's ever lived, he said, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to, wa- to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So see, Paul is saying that we, we all know God. Everyone knows God. Everyone knows that there is an all-good, all-knowing, all-powerful, holy, just, and wise God of the universe who created everything that there is. But instead of worshiping that God, what we do is we exchange that for an image representing mortal man and birds and creeping things. And it's interesting, actually. In this passage in Colossians, Paul uses that same word, images, to describe Jesus. But notice what he says. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's saying Jesus is not an idol, an image of, you know, a powerless bird or human. No, he says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, meaning if you have seen Jesus, if you have known Jesus, if you've prayed to Jesus, then what you've done is you've actually encountered the very living God and creator of the universe. That, that's an exclusive claim. That, that Jesus, the, the son of God, as he called himself, is God. He's the second person of the Godhead, the second member of the Trinity. And, and you know, we actually see that everywhere in the gospels, these stories of, of Jesus's life. We see that everywhere. That when people recognize who Jesus is, they run up to him and the Bible says that they fall on their face and worship. Philip, in fact, who was one of the earliest followers of Jesus, he was a disciple, which just means a student. He, he kind of wrestled with this idea and, and he asked Jesus one day, he approached him and said, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Philip, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and that the father is in me. 
See, Jesus is saying that he is the son of God who existed before time with God the Father. There is God the Father, God the Son, oh, and God the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons who existed eternally forever before anything existed, before all things were created. Jesus was, he is God. And, and, and now we, we might say something like, well, isn't that, that's pretty arrogant. That, that, that's pretty narrow-minded to insist that, that Jesus is, is the only true God, that, that all other religions are mistaken or false. How, how can you believe that you're right when all, there are Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, all these thousands of other religions? How can you say that they're wrong? It, after all, aren't all religions equally true? And, and let me say, if you're asking that question this morning, then thank you for asking that question this morning. Because for somebody to claim that they are God is a miraculous claim. It was just as miraculous then as it is now. That's why Paul starts there. And, and, and here's the thing. People who make that claim, who, people who claim to be God, usually fall in one of three categories. They're either liars. They're willfully telling a lie about who they are. They're, they're lunatics, meaning they're, they're out of their mind. Or they're legit. They're either liars, lunatics, or legit. It's one of those three categories. It can't be any other. So if you're asking that question, good. But, but here's what I want you to see. See, because yes, Paul is making an exclusive claim that Jesus is God. But, but what I also want you to see is that the claim that all religions are equally true, that that claim, while it looks to be inclusive, is still very much exclusive. It's still very much an exclusive claim, even though it sounds inclusive. Let me, let me, let me, claim, let me show you what I mean. See, to claim that all religions are equally true assumes that you know exclusively the truth about all other religions. To, to claim that all religions are true and to say that all Christians, Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists are mistaken that, that is saying exclusively that you know the truth about all those religions and that you actually have insight that those other religions do not have. So in other words, when you say that all religions are equally true, my question back to you to consider this morning is, is that statement true? Because if you think that that statement is true, then you claim to know exclusively that your view about all religion is correct and your belief about Jesus is correct and it's true to the exclusion of all other beliefs. But, but here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. I could, I could sit up here and I could talk till I'm blue in the face about why I think Jesus is truly God and, and I would love to do it, trust me. It's like my favorite thing to do. But here's the thing you will never be convinced that Jesus is truly God until you follow in a relationship with him. I can tell you, I can tell you that I am a Colorado Avalanche fan. But until you have a relationship with me and actually see me watching Avalanche highlights at 5.30 in the morning and looking up Avalanche statistics to see if they won the night before. By the way, they lost to the Chicago Blackhawks 3-2 to two last night in overtime. Until you actually witness me doing those things, you have to take it on my word. But if you live in relationship with me, you will see that what I'm saying is true. Jesus says the same thing here. Follow him, follow him. And he will actually show you whether or not that claim is true. See, Jesus, he never tells us, turn off your brain. 
He never says, close your eyes, take a blind leap of faith and just cross your fingers that I truly am who I say that I am. No, he says, come, follow me, come and see. In fact, the Bible in in the prophet Isaiah, God actually approaches his people and he says, come, let us reason together. God's not telling you to shut off your mind. He's telling you to engage him, follow him, and he will show you. He will show you. And, and, and Paul continues here. So he begins with this. He says, this you must know, Jesus is God. But he also says in verse 15, that this Jesus, the image of the invisible God is also the firstborn of all creation. So, so what does that mean? Well, first, what it doesn't mean, it does not mean that Jesus was the first creature. It doesn't mean he was the first created thing. And we know that's the case because Paul goes on to say in verse 17 that he was before all things. See, Jesus wasn't created. He was the eternal creator. He was before all things. So what does firstborn mean then? Well, what firstborn means is that Jesus has all authority over creation. It's a claim of authority. To be the firstborn means you have authority in the ancient world when a, a, a dad would die all of his property, all of his estate, all of his authority would go to the firstborn son. And so that's what Paul is saying, that this Jesus is the son of God who has claim and authority over every molecule of creation. It's his. And why? Why is it his? Well, because he created it. Verse 16. For by him, all things were created. The stars the moon, the sun, all things of space, earth, animals, mountains, clouds, us, all created by the son of God. Paul goes on, he says things visible and invisible, meaning not just material things that we see and touch and interact with, but, but the things we don't see, things like the law of nature, or sorry, the, things like the law of gravity, Things like souls, which the Bible says we have. He goes on, he says that even thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, he's talking about a supernatural world. God God created angels. By the way, this is where Christianity gets weird, right? This is where you know that Christianity isn't just uh, good morals to live by, just good morals for for our children so they'll grow up to be good citizens. No, there's a supernatural reality going on here that God, the son of God, created all things, including angels, these supernatural beings and spirits. And they, they were all created by him and he has authority over them all. Abraham Kuyper, who was a famous theologian, said it, said it perfectly. He said, there is not a square inch in all of creation over which Jesus does not cry, mine. It all belongs to him. It's all Jesus's. Jesus in his ministry, right? He walks on water. <laughs> That's weird. Jesus in his ministry, he calms storms. There, there's lightning and thunder and, and waves. And he says, peace be still. And it's tranquility. One time Jesus is walking into Jerusalem. He sees a fig tree and it doesn't have figs. So he curses it. And guess what happens to it? It withers. See, because Jesus doesn't obey the laws of nature. The laws of nature obey Jesus. The laws of nature were created by Jesus just as a computer program doesn't tell a computer programmer what it can and can't do. The same thing's true with Jesus. Creation has no hold over on him. Jesus oversees all of creation. He says, mine, it's mine. 
I created it. This is the big Jesus that Paul wants us to see, the very Jesus who people fall down before and worship, the very Jesus who has control over every molecule, molecule of creation. And, and Paul also says, he, he continues, he says that Jesus is not only the son of God, the creator of the universe, who has authority over the universe, but he also gives all things a purpose. God, in other words, God didn't create all things willy-nilly. Verse 16, Paul sums up this, this whole beginning by saying that all things were created through him and for him. All things before the world existed, God the Son looked at him and said, I'm gonna create all things for myself, for my purpose, for my glory. He didn't create all things willy-nilly. Like my, my daughter, Lainey, She's two years old and she's just getting into Play-Doh, right? And she'll, she'll put together kind of like this mushy Play-Doh mess and she'll bring it to my wife, Hannah and me. And we'll look at it and be like, oh, this is, this is awesome. Thank you, Lainey. What, what is it for? And she'll say, I don't know. Jesus, the son of God had a purpose that all things would live for him, that all things would live for his purpose that all things would live for his glory and for his worship. And have you, ever, have you ever asked that question, by the way, what is the purpose of life? It's a question we expect like philosophers to answer. Paul actually answers that profound question in two words. He says the purpose of life is to live for Jesus, for his purposes, his glory, his worship. And let me clarify, this is not just Sunday morning. This isn't just we come and do worship of Jesus here and then we go off and, and we, we live the rest of our lives or it's not just when we're praying, it's not just when we're reading the Bible that we're worshiping Jesus. No, Paul, right, in this, in this very section, verse 16, he says, all things were created by him. All things were created through him and for him. All things is what he was before and all things hold together in him that in all things he might be preeminent. And he's reconciling all things to himself by the blood of his cross. Jesus is, is concerned about worship in all things, all of life, every area and dimension of the existence that we live. Everything, all things are supposed to be lived to please and honor Jesus. And, and let me tell you what that means practically. Practically, that means that when we go to work on Monday through Friday, it means we do not work for wealth. It means we, we, we don't work for security. We, we don't work for comfort. Rather, we work in order to worship and honor Jesus, who's the son of God. That's the purpose of work. To fill out spreadsheets to the glory of God. I don't know how that works, by the way. I don't know how that works, but it does. We raise kids not for finding some, some kind of love that we're missing, that we're missing out on. No, we raise kids to worship and honor Jesus, the son of God, which means that, that our kids are not our own. Our kids belong to Jesus. They, they don't belong to us. We, we're stewards, which means we're supposed to raise them up for the purpose of honoring and worshiping Jesus. Again, how that works, I don't know. We get married not for finding some intimacy that we're missing or for companionship or for upward social mobility. No, we get married to worship and honor and glorify Jesus who is the son of God. It's the purpose of all things to live to the honor and worship of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is not asking you to neglect your life to worship him, to go off into a cave somewhere and meditate for long hours on who Jesus is. No, he is telling us right here 
that we worship and honor Jesus when we live life fully as he intended it to be lived, which is to his glory. That's the purpose of life. And, and the thing is, is creation is doing this. The psalmist, uh, a psalmist who, uh, the Psalms are, are books in the middle of the Bible. The psalmist says in, in one verse that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And what he's saying is that when you look at the sky, it declares God. When you look at the stars above, you know that there is a worship, a worship full and a one worthy of worship, a creator who created it all. When you look at the mountains, it screams, I have a creator and his name is God. That is the purpose that creation, all of creation is driving toward. Creation does it perfectly, but the Bible says that there is one thing in creation that does not do it. The Bible says it's us. The Bible says that all things fulfill their purpose. The only thing that isn't is humankind, the creatures that God made in his own image. That's the only thing in the cosmos that does not live for its purpose. In fact, that's, that's actually what the Bible calls sin. See, see sin is, is not just bad manners. It's not just bad behavior. There was this guy, his name was H.L. Mencken, and he was a critic of Christianity. He said, the Christian idea of sin is the haunting fear that someone somewhere is actually having a good time. And, but no, what the Bible says is that sin is missing the mark. It's a sporting term. That's, that's literally what the word sin means. It means missing the mark. In archery, you have a target down range and the purpose of the arrow and the person shooting the bow is to shoot that arrow and hit the target on the bullseye. The Bible says we have missed the mark living for the glory and honor of God. In fact, the Bible says that we are these errant arrows that we're not aimed even toward God, we're aimed away from God. And here's the thing that the Bible says too. Scripture tells us that, that sin, it's not, it's not just a mistake. It's not like taking a wrong turn on the interstate. The Bible says that actually when we, when we commit sin, it's an act of cosmic treason. It's rebellion against the God who made us. And you might be thinking, that, that's a little extreme, Right? That's a little extreme. It was a white lie. I didn't commit cosmic treason. No, but, the, but you have to think. The Bible says, God, we have a creator. And when we sin, what it's saying is, God, yeah, I know you made me to worship and honor you. I know that you say lying is wrong. I know that you say anger is wrong. I know that you say lust is wrong. Selfishness is wrong. Stealing is wrong. Lying is wrong. Gossip's wrong. Envy's wrong. Jealousy's wrong. I know you say that these things are wrong, but God... I know what's best for my life. See, when we commit sin, what we're actually saying is, God, you are not God. I am. It's an act of cosmic treason. Sin is trying to dethrone the king and ruler of the universe. I, I used to work at the Courtyard Marriott Hotel, and, and we, we always told people explicitly, no smoking in the rooms. And it was on the contract that we had him sign, no smoking in the rooms. And we had signs on their door that had a big cigarette with the big red X around it, no smoking in the rooms. 
And we told people, if, if you smoke in the rooms, it will terminate your stay here and you will be asked to kindly leave. And what do you know? Every once in a while, people would call down to the front desk. I would answer and they say, hey, somebody in the room adjacent to mine is smoking. So I would have to go up there, knock on the door and tell those people, thank you for staying at the Courtyard Marriott. Will you please leave? Have a nice day, right? <laughs> I said it nice like that, I promise. I want you to think here with me. If it is acceptable for a hotel owner and his guests or her guests, how much more so is it true of the God of the universe, the creator and his creatures? See, the Bible says that sin is worthy of the penalty of cosmic treason, which is death and eternal condemnation apart from God. But, Jesus, who's this ruler of creation, this passage says that he hasn't, he, he hasn't done that. God didn't crumple up the universe at the first sin and, and throw it out. No, it says Jesus, the ruler of creation, his intention is not to destroy creation, but to save it, to save creation, to, to gather people to himself. That's what Jesus came to do, to gather people to himself. Jesus, Jesus in his ministry said, come to me, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. I will take my sins upon you. I will save you. And, and he says that when you do that, he, he commits himself to you. He commits himself to you. In fact, the Bible says that he unites himself to you. Just as a husband is united to his wife, just as a head is united to a body, Jesus is gathering and saving and uniting himself to a people that the Bible calls the church. And that's the second thing Paul's trying to emphasize here is that Jesus, not only the ruler of creation, he is the ruler of the church. And he says so beginning in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. C.S. Lewis, who was a philosopher and uh, a Christian thinker during the the 20th century, uh, wasn't always a Christian. In fact, he was a hardened atheist. And whenever he was asked by people, why do you not believe in God? He would respond generally with something like this. He would say, just look at the universe we live in. History is largely a record of crime, war, disease, and terror. The universe is running down. All stories, all human stories will come to nothing. All life will turn out in the end to have been transitory and senseless. And and we have to be honest that, that that can sound right. If there isn't a God who is on the throne intending things for a purpose, then that is right. And, and you wouldn't have to look far to find it. Recently, uh, two years ago, my wife and I we were running in a half marathon in Nashville called uh, the St. Jude Half Marathon of Nashville. And um, as you're running this race and you take the final turn to go through the city center to finish the race, it's about a mile and a half, they start putting up these big banners, these big pictures of the kids that you're running for. If you know anything about St. Jude, it's a research hospital aimed at ending childhood cancer. And, and as you're finishing this race, you see these pictures 
of kids who, who are battling life-threatening illnesses. And, and you know that when you see that, something's not right. Something's off. And, and we can try to deny it, but there, there's something off. Death is not natural. Death's an enemy. And then the point is this. Paul is saying that if you are united to Jesus, if you place your faith in Jesus and follow him, and you're part of his body through faith, then this world, this world full of death, this, this world full of cancer, this world full of poverty and disease and war and sorrow, this world is not the end of the story. It's actually just the beginning. Paul's saying that when Jesus, after, after he lived a perfect life, after he was crucified and after he was placed in a tomb, he says that 2,000 years ago, Jesus stepped out of the tomb in what the Bible calls the resurrection. And, and when Jesus did that, he began something new. He started a new beginning. That's why he says that Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn, the one with authority over death. That Jesus actually defeated death when he stepped out of the grave. He actually began to reverse the curse of sin. And he was beginning the process of making all of the world new and renewed. I, I don't make a habit of crying over children's books, but... My kids read this book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And when they're discussing this reality, they describe it as this, that Jesus, when he comes again, will make all the sad things come untrue. Wow. And Paul says, in fact, that's the reason that Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus stepped out of the grave, verse 18, so that in everything, he might be preeminent. One who's preeminent is first. They're the ruler. They're the king. They call the shots. They're supreme. They're the Lord. In other words, all things, when Jesus comes again, will live for the purpose they were created for. They will live to worship, honor, and glorify Jesus. And he will be the first. All sad things will come untrue because Jesus, as the preeminent one, will reorder this universe the way it was intended, without pain, without sorrow, without death. The apostle John, he had a way of putting this because he actually saw the vision of what this was gonna be like in the book of Revelation. It says, Revelation verse 21 Jesus said he looked and he saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne, that's Jesus, saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, again, that's Jesus, says, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And you know why they're trustworthy and true? is because when 2,000 years ago, Jesus was resurrected from the dead, we're told that he ascended into heaven. So we know that if he was resurrected from the dead, historically, literally, really, that his body came out of the tomb, we know he'll make good on this promise, that he will one day make all things new. He will make all the sad things come untrue. That is our hope. 
And I don't know what you walked in with this this morning. My, my daughter is at home. She has pneumonia. She had pink eye. My wife got sick last night. I, many of you are battling cancer right now. So, some of you are battling depression. And, and here's the thing. And I hate to say this, but, but it's, it's gotta be said that Jesus doesn't promise us our best life now. He doesn't. He doesn't promise us our best life now. He doesn't promise us health, wealth, prosperity. He, does, he doesn't promise us that. He said, in fact, that this world will be full of trial and persecution and even suffering and sickness. But, but he promises something better. He promises a new and living hope, a hope to renew all things. Fanny Crosby, who was a, a famous hymn writer in the 19th century, she wrote over 8,000 hymns, by the way. Which, by the way, like, I've heard that if you do something 10,000 times, you become an expert in it. So she's pretty close. I think we'll give her a pass. She's an expert in writing hymns. Fanny Crosby was born blind. And she said this. One time a pastor came up to her and said, I think it's a great pity that God did not give you sight when he showered so many blessings and gifts upon you. But Crosby responded by saying, I don't think it's a pity. Because when, I, when Jesus comes again, the first face that will ever gladden my sight will be my savior. See, that is our hope. That's our hope. That this world will be a new creation and Jesus promised it. Can I ask you, what world are you living for? Which world are you living for? Jesus said that, that this world is per perishing. Jesus said that you can store up treasures on earth, but, but moth and rust will destroy them. But he says he has treasure for you in heaven. He has eternal treasure for you. Wh which world are you living for? Some people would look at my life, right? And it, some people would actually look at my life and they'd say, hey, he's got, he's got things going for him. Right, like he's married, he, he has two kids. I have a Honda, right? Like I, I have good things. I, I even just bought a house. I just bought a house. And, and you know what they just sent me in the mail the other day? They sent me 10% off Lowe's. So that's what I have to show for this world. I have a Honda, a house, a really expensive mortgage and 10% off Lowe's. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's, that's funny. <laughs> Which world are you living for? And, and if I could ask you honestly and boldly and just be really blunt with you, can I, can I ask you, what better option do you have? What, what better option do you have? Why, why wouldn't you follow Jesus when he's offering you eternal treasure? And you have to know that I wouldn't be honest if I wasn't bringing this up. Paul wrote this letter in prison. In fact, he, he ends this letter by saying, remember my chains, grace to you. In other words, what he's, what he's saying is, I wanna give you this reminder. If you follow Jesus, it could mean prison for you. It, it could actually mean hardship for you. And, and the natural question that we should all ask then, right, is then why should we trust this Jesus? Why should we trust someone who gives us 
this hope of renewing all things, but tells us that in order to get to that hope, we have to go through suffering and trial and hardship. Why would we trust ourselves to that kind of God, that kind of Jesus? Well, Paul gives us the answer to that. In verse 19, he says, because, the word for, because in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul is saying here that you can follow Jesus. You can trust Jesus with your life. Even if it means prison or sickness or trial and death. Just as a side note, there's a the guy named Malcolm Mutteridge who is a real critic, a real hardened atheist to Christianity. And he said that when he visited India, to visit a leper colony in a leper hospital and saw Mother Teresa, he said it clicked for him in that moment. And he realized humanists don't start leper hospitals. But there is something powerful compelling these people to go and encounter even a leper hospital. And they feel like the one leading them there is trustworthy. See, you can follow Jesus to a leper colony or even to the coldest Roman prison because you know this, that Jesus, the ruler of creation, loved you so much that he left his throne of heaven and came to pick up a cross and lay his life down for you. Paul says that in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He took on flesh, he, he, he dwelt with us, he became fully human, he endured sickness, he endured suffering, he endured trial, he endured all things, even death on a cross, because he wanted to show you that he loves you and he was willing to die for the very sin that you commit, the very worst thing that you would never even show the people you love. And he says that he did this to reconcile you to God to reconcile you, to make your relationship right so that it would be a relationship of peace. You know, when somebody that I don't know tells me that they love me, I kind of raise an eyebrow and I'm skeptical. But when my wife, who has sacrificed so much for me, who has sat in my bedside when I was sick, my wife, who has suffered so much for me and has sacrificed so much for me, tells me that she loves me, I'm more inclined to believe it. The God of the universe says he loves you and he's given you living living proof by sending his own son to lay down his life for you so that you could be reconciled to him. That's a Jesus you can trust. That's the big Jesus that Paul wants you to know. I'm gonna close with this. I remember the very first time that I ever actually disappointed my dad. It was in high school. And my friend Pat and I had this great plan. We were gonna steal a Gatorade from our, ca- our high school cafeteria. So we had this brilliant plan. We were gonna sneak into the caf- cafeteria because it was always unlocked. And we were gonna sneak in. I was gonna steal the two Gatorades and my friend Pat was gonna stand outside of the, of the door and he was gonna put his foot on the door so that if anybody came by that could get us in trouble, then I wouldn't be able to get out. And I just know, okay, I have to wait a little bit and then I'd try again. And, and then finally I'd open it up and we'd get our Gatorade and we'd have fun. I don't know what that was. I don't know why. But that was the plan. So I sneak in, I grab the two Gatorades and, and I go to the door and I pull the handle and I open it and who do I see but the assistant principal of Pomona High School. I don't know what Paul, Pat was doing, 
I have absolutely no idea. But I remember going home and I remember that that was the very first time in my life that I couldn't look my dad in the face because I was ashamed. I knew that I had disappointed my father. I knew that our relationship had changed. That was the first time I got caught. I had done things before, but this is the first time I got caught and I had to actually face my father. And, and I'm glad to say, you know, my dad was here in the first service. Our relationship's obviously restored, but you know, it took time, right? It took time. It took time for me to, to realize, hey, no matter what I've done, no matter what sin I've committed, no matter how ashamed or guilty I felt, I could bring that to my father and he would still warmly embrace me and love me and tell me that I am his child. And what Paul's showing us here is that time doesn't heal all wounds when it comes to us and God. No, Jesus heals those wounds. He actually bore a cross to restore our relationship with God so that we would have peace with him. Any barrier that stands between you and God has been removed by the cross and blood of Jesus Christ. He laid down his life for you so that you could run to God as your heavenly father. Whatever it is that is in your way, Jesus has removed it. Guilt, shame, whatever it is, it's been removed. And here's the thing. If, if you wait, if you're waiting for that until you're better, if you're waiting until, oh, I gotta get, I gotta do more good things so that, that God will accept me or I have to be more holy or, or I have to do X, Y, and Z. If you wait until you're better, you're never gonna come at all. Jesus says he's interested in rebels. He's interested in people who have offended him and he warmly embraces him. He says, come to me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love for us, that you did not leave us in darkness, you did not leave us in our sin, but you came and, and you sent your son, Jesus, to take on flesh, to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserved, to demonstrate that you love us, that you care for us, and that you want a relationship with us. In fact, you want an eternal relationship with us. God, I pray that you would apply that message to our hearts because we just so desperately need it. We live in a world where there is no good news. And we thank you for this good news that we can hear you speak and we hear this truth. And I pray that it would change us because we all need to change. Lord, and we pray that as we go about our weeks that you would really give us eyes to see this in all aspects of our life, that we would live all things for you, Jesus. And that you would help us see how big, how beautiful and believable you really are. We pray these things in your name to you, God the Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.